Take your Bibles this morning and open them with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. While you're turning there, I do want to say that we are going to Denver over spring break in March, this coming March. And tonight we will have an uh, information meeting on that at 5.45 p.m. Uh, if you attend, it is not a commitment. Uh, it's just purely for those who are curious about what we're going to be doing to explore if they want to go or not. So I want to invite you back tonight at 5.45 for that meeting uh, to help that church plant in Denver, Colorado, and then you can stay for the evening service as well. Well, I debated starting like this, but I'm, I'm going to anyways, and I debated doing so because I know it doesn't look this way, but at one point in my life, I used to be athletic and in shape and competitive. Today, I pretty much get winded and exhausted going to the fridge too fast. But at one point in my life, <clears throat> I could actually carry my own in a competition. Now, one of my downfalls as a younger guy was my competitive nature. I remember being in college for a few years, and um, this particular individual, individual wanted to go on a jog with me. And Well, I hadn't, I hadn't been jogging since high school. Uh, but I thought, you know what, I can probably maintain. I used to be an athlete. And so I went out, and this individual was a regular runner. <clears throat> if you know me, I'm not a runner. And that shows. But uh, I decided I was going to do my best to keep up. But part of my competitive nature was, although I wouldn't have said it verbally, in my heart, this was totally a race. Now, I wasn't going to tell that person because I didn't want them to actually work at beating me. I wanted to just beat them in my own heart and be fine with it. So I developed this plan that I was going to keep up with them jogging. And, and about a certain point, I was going to man light the afterburners and go and just run across the finish line and be there waiting on them and, and boast and brag about it and all those kind of things. Well, the track we were running on was covered in brush and bushes and shrubbery and trees, and I got a little bit disoriented, <clears throat> and I came around a particular curve, and I saw up ahead there was another curve, and I thought after that second curve would be the finish line, time to enact my plan. And so I took off and left this person in the dust. I'm talking like they couldn't see me. I come around this curve. They're nowhere to be found. And as I come around this curve, I realize there's another curve. And then after that one, there's another one. <clears throat> Truth be told, I lit the afterburners about a half a mile away from the finish line. And so, uh, long story short, I um, hobble and, and drag myself across the line. And this person is standing there waiting on me. And, uh, you know, good thing it wasn't a race. And uh, they said, you want to take another lap? I said, no. I don't want to take another lap. My competitive nature uh, really got me into a lot of trouble throughout life. And it didn't lend itself to the best judgment or the best wisdom. And if you are a runner, you know that doing stunts like that, not running very often and then trying to blow somebody away, uh, it's actually more harmful to your body than just jogging along at a comfortable pace. Well, my competitive nature... Uh, did that many times to me. I actually caused more damage than good. Now for myself, 
I tell you that to say my competitive nature was and is rooted out of pride. I thought myself to be better than the next individual. And if I wasn't, we were going to compete until I was. So I might change the rules in a game. You know, now it's best two out of three or however long it takes for me to win kind of deal. Uh, and that was because I thought I could beat anybody. Now, if, if we're going to be honest with one another, we all struggle to some degree or another with pride, don't we? Some of us have more issues of pride than the next individual, but pride is the common factor and the common ground for all of our lives. It's, it's the common human experience. And pride brings about much more than just a competitive nature, doesn't it? Ultimately, and, and in its worst form, pride brings about rebellion to God. Every sin that we make and every choice that we make that's contrary to the Word of God or, or the person of God is really a prideful heart, a prideful thought, a prideful belief that, God, my way is better than yours. This choice I'm making is, is more uh, wise than, than what your Word says. My understanding of the situation is better than yours. I think I have more control than you. On and on and on. That, that's pride in its worst form. But pride also brings about other things. brings about confusion. It brings about uh, your own personal downfall. God's Word promises that. It brings about other pains and, and other, other disgraces in our lives. But perhaps equally as important as rebelling against God, <clears throat> pride brings a false sense of justification. Now that is a major and loaded statement. And what I mean by that is pride can bring a false sense of thinking that you are right with God when in fact you are not. And I would say that is most prevalent among religious people. In fact, that's what Scripture says. That's the experience of religious people in Scripture. That's the experience of religious people in our own church and in our own church culture today. We are prone in our pride to think that we are saved and are right before God when in fact that is not the case. It can bring in its equally worse form a false sense of salvation, a false sense of justification. Which most often means, and you've heard this said before, people think that they are good enough in their relationship with the Lord. How many times have we heard the question, uh, somebody asks, when you die and, and you stand before God, why will He let you into heaven? And people say, I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm actually a rather decent person. I'm, I'm good enough. God is a loving God and He knows my heart and the intentions of my heart and surely He'll take those matters into account. I'm a relatively good person. I haven't murdered somebody or, or done anything atrocious like that. I'm, I'm decent. That's a prideful, false sense of justification. But then we can put the religious complex upon that and pride in that category says, I think I've actually kept God's laws good enough. I think I've actually, at least with the intentions of my heart, done the best that I can do in regards to God's Word. I've been obedient enough. That's the religious perspective. And church, that is nothing more than a prideful view of equalization between you and God. I can be and attain to the same perfection 
as God. And that also is a prideful, false sense of justification. Do you know how many people think they are right before God and will be rudely awakened on the last day? Do you know how many people hear the Gospel and hear God's Word wash over them and hear the truth of sin and judgment and condemnation and they think, that's not for me, I haven't been that bad. Do you know how many people sit and listen to the gospel and examine their own lives and they can't come up with anything that they've transgressed against God? That is pride and that is a false sense of justification before God. That may be some of us today. And that's what pride does to your heart. And we know those things to be untrue, don't we? No man can attain to perfection. And yet, despite that knowledge, too many people sit and examine their lives and think, I'm not that bad. God loves me. Well, that's what we find today in, in Luke chapter 10. We actually encounter a man who fits this mold perfectly. He is filled with pride, and his pride has given over in his heart to a false sense of justification. In fact, he's a religious individual who thinks he is right before God. And as he encounters Jesus, as is so often with religious people in the, the Bible, as he encounters Jesus, he's going to be rudely awakened to the reality of his standing before God. Uh, primarily and specifically, his reality towards eternal life. He's only identified in this text as a lawyer. Your Bible may translate or, or call him a scribe. That's just as equally as true. Lawyers and scribes were often interchangeable terminology for the same individual. A scribe was a legal expert of the time. They were the interpreters of the law and the interpreters of the Old Testament of, of God's Word. They were on the same level as the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that group of people. That's who they belonged to. And so although we don't have this man's name, we just have his title, we have enough to know something about his personality. He does belong to that self-righteous crowd. And he does belong to that elitist group that Jesus will later call whitewashed tombs. That's the man we're dealing with here. And the nature of the conversation he has with Jesus reveals even more his character. Again, he is a prideful man filled with a false sense of justification. And he does not understand the truth of God's requirements for eternal life. And so many people are going to fit His mold. So many people can take His title out and plug their name in to this passage. Who think they know the things of God like He, he does. Who, who are around the things of God regularly like He is. Who think they know the answer to eternal life like He does, but in reality, they have no idea the true requirements of eternal life in God's eyes. They may know the language, they don't know the truth. This man fits that category. And so as we walk through this text this morning, we're going to look at the reality of eternal life. We're going to look at and see that every one of us has a desire to compromise. And then we're going to finally wrap up with the unchanging requirements of God. Take your Bibles and look in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 with me this morning. Let's begin reading in 
we will customarily back up and walk through it. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Verse 29, But, Jesus, or but, but the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go, and you do likewise. Now this man asked the most important question, and this is where we start to understand the reality of eternal life. He asked the most important question that could ever be asked. Now you and I, on every daily basis, we face difficult, serious questions. Different stages in our life, those questions change. Who am I to marry, and what am I to do with with my life and what job am I to work and what's my purpose here on earth and what should be my major and what happens when I lose my job and and what happens when this happens or that or this or that the other we have serious and tough questions all the time but let me tell you there is no more important question than the one this man asked today what shall I do to inherit eternal life that is the most important thing a human being could ever ask Yet, this man is not asking the question for question's sake. It's a disguise for him. He has an ulterior motive. In verse 25, he doesn't stand up to just ask the question. He stands up to put Jesus to the test. I want to test what this man has to say. So his question is not really just approach of genuine curiosity, although that may be present in his heart. He may be curious what Jesus has to say. His main motive is to catch Jesus in some sort of deficiency, some sort of blasphemy. He wants to test the knowledge of Jesus concerning godly matters and godly things. In other words, he really wants to back Jesus in a corner and engage Him in an intellectual battle with the Scriptures. And of all people, he picked the wrong guy. But that's his motive. That's what he wants to do. He wants to put the Lord to the test concerning what he knows. And knowing this man's title as a scribe or a lawyer, let me tell you, he thinks he knows everything. 
And there are so many people even today who fit that very mold, think they know everything, want to debate even with the Lord himself. And that's where we find this man. Now, although he has an ulterior motive, Jesus addresses the question because of the nature of the question. And by addressing the question, he addresses the, the motive. He doesn't, this man doesn't express his motive that I'm testing you. Jesus knows the man's heart. John chapter 2, he knows what's in man. John chapter 3, he knew what Nicodemus was really asking. John chapter 4, he knew the past history of the woman at the well. It's no surprise that this man's rising up to test Jesus. But Jesus is going to focus on the question itself. And by focusing on that, he will put this gentleman in his place. And he begins in verse 26 with a question of his own. He responds to the man's question with a question. And he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now that language tells us Jesus is not backing down from this intellectual battle that's about to take place. He's in fact actually engaging in it. The language that he uses says, I want to engage you with the Scriptures. How do you Read them. How do you interpret them? How do you apply them? How do you see them? He is actually humiliating the man. Because he's making this lawyer answer his own question. Which is in other words saying, why do you feel the need to ask the question if you already know the answer? And so by engaging this man with a question of his own, he is putting the man in his place. Notice also, he's driving the man back to what? The Scriptures themselves. The answer to eternal life, let me tell you, is found in the Old Testament. John Calvin would say, concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament. It's there. The truth of God is there. And Jesus says, you can turn there and find the answer. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man actually does respond with Scripture. First, with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And then he tags on Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Jesus gives the exact same answer other places in Scripture. They will approach Jesus and they'll say, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus will say what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says that in two places. Matthew 22, verse 34 and 40. And Mark chapter 12, verse 28 and 31. In other words, the man answers correctly. And Jesus, in verse 28, gives approval to his answer. You're right. You have answered correctly. And then here's the right hook. Do this, and you will live. He gives approval to the man's scriptural, biblical, correct answer, and then he instructs him, now go do that, and you will have eternal life. It's not, a, it's not a works-based issue that Jesus is getting at here. He's getting at a matter of the heart. And what He's really saying to this lawyer is, do you, do, does your heart perfectly love God? And does your heart perfectly love like God? That's the summary of the law. Just like you would in the Sermon on the Mount, 
everything to the Lord is a matter of the heart. And yet, unlike the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't expound on this man's answer. He doesn't add, add to it or anything like that. He doesn't interpret it. He doesn't even apply it. He just says, you're right, now go do it. Love the Lord perfectly from your heart and love others like the Lord perfectly from your heart. Here's the reality of eternal life, church. It is unattainable. You cannot earn it. That's what Christ is getting at. For who of us in this room has loved God perfectly? Who of us has loved his neighbor perfectly? I might even concede some of what the man's answer is to you. I might even say that for a brief moment, you could love God perfectly from your heart, but that too is fleeting. When we add all these other requirements, heart, soul, strength, and mind, I can definitely guarantee you, none of us have perfectly loved God in all of those ways, from all of those places at all times. Well, what about the second command? None of us, I guarantee you, has loved our neighbors perfectly. Certainly none of us have loved them like God loves people. You cannot even love your spouse. You cannot even love your children the way God loves. You can't love anyone else perfectly. How much more difficult is that for a stranger or an enemy? It's not just, church, that we find difficulty in these two statements and this man's answer and Jesus' approval of his answer. When Jesus says, do these things, it's not just that difficulty exists. It's that we have actually transgressed these things. Because it's not just that you haven't loved God perfectly, it's that you've hated God with your rebellion. And it's not just that you haven't loved your neighbor perfectly, it's that you've hated your neighbor with hatred in your heart and in your mind and disdain for them. Which Christ would call what? Murder. The reality of eternal life as answered by Christ is that it is impossible. This man gives the correct answer. And then Jesus shoves it right in his face. If you do that, you will live. The problem and glaring problem for all of us, including the lawyer, is I can't do that. I have not done that. I cannot do that. I will grip my knuckles and grit my teeth and I still cannot do that. If doing these things is what it takes to inherit eternal life, you and I are in trouble. It's that simple. And it's what that lawyer needs to know. If you have a problem of pride that's leading to a false sense of justification, you need to hear these words soberly and clearly. There is nothing good in you that can earn your salvation. Instead, this answer that the man gives is totally correct. And instead of trying to grit your teeth and grip your knuckles and do it to the best of your ability, these things are meant to drive us to Christ. Meant to drive us to God. The second point we want to look at this morning, though, is true of all of us. We desire a compromise. We want God to relax His requirements, don't we? Lessen your commands. Lower your expectations a little bit. And that's what this man's getting at in verse 29. 
instead of being driven to God like the tax collector was, and like he should have been, he attempts to justify himself and ask God for this compromise. Now I want you to notice, and here's where we start to glean a little bit of the man's pride. Not only just in the fact that he's testing the Lord, but the fact that he's trying to justify himself, but also that he's trying to justify himself in one category. He doesn't address both commands. Probably because he doesn't think he's deficient in loving God perfectly. He's trying to snatch Jesus in a, in a game of definitions regarding the commandment he knows he fails at. Which, by the way, he fails at both, as we all do. He is much like another character we know in Scripture, the rich young ruler who thought he had kept all of God's commandments. These things, again, are meant to drive us to our inability to achieve them. So verse 29, he knows he does not have the self-denying love for others that Scripture calls us to have. That's in 1 John 4, by the way. And so he begins to engage the Lord in this game. I, I can love my self-righteous leaders who are just like me, but loving outcasts, I'm not so sure about. Loving a stranger, that seems a little far-fetched to me, Jesus. He's starting to understand the impossibility of the requirements for eternal life. And so he performs what we call the classic lawyer's loophole. You don't really mean everybody, right? You can't possibly mean everybody. Surely you're not talking about the ungodly. Surely you're not talking about Gentiles treating Gentiles like they're my neighbor. Surely there's some kind of narrower definition of what you're talking about here. And I need some kind of clarification. I need some kind of com uh, compromise. Really, Jesus, how literal can you be? How literal can you take loving everybody as your neighbor? Let me just say, we ask those same questions today in various different forms. There's got to be some other answer to this. That's exactly what this lawyer's thinking. And let me just tell you again, because I want it to be clear. When you are faced with the impossibility of God's requirements, you only have one of two options. You either run to the Lord for mercy like the tax collector, God be merciful to me, a sinner, or you respond like this lawyer does in trying to justify your own failings. He responds in his pride. I'm going to justify my own failings. I've tried to attain my own eternal life by my own ability. I'm going to try to cover up my mistakes with my own ability. There's got to be some other definition. I want a compromise. The problem for this man and the problem for you and I is there is no compromise. There is no changing of the requirements for eternal life. Jesus engages in this parable to display that very truth. That's the third point this morning. The unchanging reality of God's requirements. We come to what is what has become really one of the most famous parables in all the world. Not just among church going people, but among the whole world. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. In fact, this has turned into, uh, and rightly so in some senses, uh, a biblical ethics lesson. But the world has taken it to just be a, a moral lesson. Let me tell you, that's not the point of the parable. 
There are moral lessons to learn here. The parable is being shared to answer this man's question about eternal life and who his neighbor is. And so Jesus engages in this famous parable and He mentions four people that show us the impossible standard of loving our neighbors. The first individual in this parable is the man who is beaten. He's on this very famous road of the time going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That road, stretch of road that he's traveling is equivalent to the interstate right here in our region. It is well known, it is popular, and it's well traveled. And it's the quickest route. Now he's descending several hundred feet in elevation, possibly several thousand feet in elevation as Jerusalem set so much higher than the next largest city to it, Jericho. And on that road, as the elevation is changing, there's a lot of cliffs and rocks and caves. And in those caves, people called the zealots and other individuals, thieves, would live and hide waiting to pounce on any individual that they might be able to take advantage of. This is what happens to this man in the parable. Jesus is sharing a very common uh, theme in a common situation so that everybody can understand what he's saying. This man's traveling down the dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho and the robbers jump on him. They strip him, they beat him, and they leave him for dead. Now, this isn't your children's Sunday school imagery here. Picture the man with me who's beaten. He's bloodied, no clothes, no possessions, laying in the dirt, broken, hardly breathing, most likely slipping in and out of consciousness. That's the first man we encounter. The second one is in verse 31. It's a priest. Now the priests were the ones who actually worked the sacrifices at the temple. They were the ones slaughtering the animals and doing the rituals and, and all of those kind of things. Now presumably, this particular priest is either finished with his duties at the temple and going back home to Jer Jericho, or he's coming from home in Jericho to do his duties at the temple in Jerusalem. Because we know at this time most of the priests actually lived in Jericho, not Jerusalem. And on his way, he sees in a distance this man lying half dead on the road and he passes him up. He avoids him. Probably for a number of reasons, but two main ones. One, he wanted to avoid being attacked himself. But two, and more likely, he wanted to avoid becoming unclean in case the man was dead. I don't want to get near or touch an unclean man or dead man because I'll become unclean and can't go to the temple. You see what happened is his religious self-righteousness forfeited true godliness. And so he actually, he doesn't just pass on by, he goes to the other side of the road to pass by. Leaving him Half dead. That is complete and total avoidance. The third individual is a Levite. Verse 32. And he does the same thing. Levites were not priests. They did not do the sacrifices at the temple. Instead, they were the aides of the temple. They performed inquires. Uh, they cleaned. They helped the priest out. They were also people who were like the priest, presumably close to God. They're doing God's work and God's duties. 
But the language for the Levi actually implies in, in the original wording that he went up to the man who was beaten to see him and then passed by on the other side. Either way, both these two godly individuals passed by on the other side with complete and total avoidance of the man who's in need. Now, real quick, bear with me here. Jesus is using a very common structure, story structure and format for the day. Often, stories of, of need and, and helplessness like this involved a priest and a Levite and then a, a layperson, an Israelite. And just like the people of today who get frustrated with the leaders of our country, the people in Jesus' day got frustrated with their leaders. And so they loved to hear and to tell stories of something that needed to be done where the priest failed and the Levite failed, but some ordinary Israelite came along and saved the day. And so that's what they're expecting. Oh, Jesus is engaging in a familiar story here. Let, let's listen how the Israelite comes to save the day and puts the leaders to shame. Only Jesus has a change in the fourth individual in his story. It's a Samaritan, not an Israelite. And the Samaritans are the hated enemies of the Jews. They're seen as half-breeds, unclean, impure, worthless, Gentile, intermarried, mixed race and religion. They weren't regarded as even equal people. And so Jesus initiates this shock where the enemy comes along in verse 33 to where this man was. And when he sees him, he also puts the priest and the Levite to shame. He has compassion on the beaten man. Now those listening would not rejoice in the Samaritan upstanding their leaders of the day, but that's what Jesus' story is set upon. Verse 34, he he went to the man, he bound up his wounds, he poured oil on him and wine on him, he set him on his own animal, he brought him to an inn, and, and look at the, the wording, he took care of him. If, if this man hadn't heard Jesus teaching on going the extra mile for an individual, he's certainly practicing it. Verse 35, the next day, so he's taking care of and provided for this man for a whole day. The next day, he took out two denarii, which were, uh, a denarii was a day's wage for common labor, and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of this man, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Perhaps this man was going to Jericho on business or Jerusalem on business. Regardless, he says, I'm going to come back. And I assume responsibility for this individual. Whatever debts he incurs and you incur in taking care of him, charge him to me. I will be back to, to look out for him. Make sure he's okay. Jesus, in light of this really shocking story, looks to the robber in verse 36 and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, the parable is crystal clear to the lawyer. And it's clear to you and I. And Jesus, again, is making the lawyer answer his own question with a question of his own. And the lawyer has no other option in verse 37 but to say, the one who showed him mercy. 
Now you'll notice at the beginning of this parable, the man asked, who is my neighbor? Who am I to be a neighbor to? And Jesus' whole parable is the point here. You are to become neighborly to everyone. Who is my neighbor? You need to be neighborly to everyone you encounter. Everyone in need. Everyone who's, who's struggling. Now, this man thought he would catch Jesus in a trap. And what he comes to find is that Jesus has just raised the standard of neighborliness far beyond what he could have ever imagined. I'm not just to be compassionate and care and show kindness to those in my own circles. I'm to do it to everybody, including enemies, including Samaritans, including uh, unclean, possibly dead people. It's a godliness kind of act. It's a, a godliness kind of neighborliness that's filled with mercy and self-sacrificing love and unbiased care. And Jesus says that's the standard of neighborliness when the Bible says love your neighbor as yourself. That's what I'm talking about. I don't know about you, but I, I would have been just fine with the original statement. You don't have to raise the bar here for me make it even more difficult that's exactly what Christ has done he's talking about a mercy that transcends diversity and differences and social statuses it it transcends political affiliation and your upbringing and wealth or poverty or nationality or ethnicity or your past or your background it's a neighborliness to all people of all times of all races it's as if Jesus is saying, you want to know who your neighbor is? Well, let me just show you how high the bar really is in God's requirements and expectations. This is the biblical ethic, and this is the unchanging requirement for eternal life. And you can't get past it. And then Jesus issues in verse 37, the original instruction, go and do likewise. This is a pride-destroying text. Because if you think you've loved God perfectly and you think you've loved your neighbor perfectly, let's see how you stack up to the parable. This man doesn't stack up. You and I don't stack up. And yet the original instruction remains and it remains uncompromised and unrelenting. Go and do this. And this time it remains in the face of even higher and more specific standards. Show this kind of care and this kind of love and this kind of mercy and this kind of help to anybody who needs any sort of help. Regardless of anything. Love the outcast, the beaten, the enemy, the, the hypocrite. The unwanted. And the problem remains for this lawyer and for you and I and for anybody else. And it's the very same problem that Jesus is trying to convey and drive home. It's the point He's trying to get across to this man. It's the same point He tried to get across to the rich young ruler. You can't love this way on your own. Which again, we have our original problem. If this is the answer to eternal life, we are in trouble because we cannot attain to these things. And according to the parable, God's not compromising. And He's not lowering His standards. And He's not changing His requirements. In fact, church, let me just be clear. 
you and I are more like the priest and the Levite than we ever are like the Good Samaritan. We far more often pass people by on the other side of the road than we ever do go up and take care of them. It's not just that we can't meet up to this. We're actually the, the, the bad guys in the story. Again, isn't this especially concerning since this is dealing with eternal life? You bet it is. This whole parable and, and this whole text is meant to drive us to see our complete inability to attain eternal life on our own and our complete need to run to God for mercy. Your pride wants to build within you a false sense of justification. Let this text tear that down. If you do not come to Jesus pleading for mercy and forgiveness and grace and salvation, you might have a problem. This whole parable, it's not just a simple moral lesson. It's a gut punch to our self-righteousness. None of us have lived up to the standard of the Good Samaritan. Hang it on your walls, write it in your phone, put it on your dashboard, stick it to the mirror. It is a great moral lesson and it is good biblical ethics. It is, it is resembling godliness, but it is our downfall because we don't live up. And when we measure, we don't measure up. But the good news is we could also take this parable and make it an analogy because we are not the Good Samaritan. We are the beaten man who's been ravaged by sin and Christ is the Good Samaritan who came and took us on His own and took care of us and provided for us and made a way for us to live again. We are the ones laying in the dirt dead. And Jesus is the outcast, unwanted Samaritan who says, I will take responsibility for them and I will not leave them alone. I'll come back. I'll pay their debt. I'll take care of them and heal their wounds. I'll make them whole again that they may live. Christ is the good Samaritan. Your answer to eternal life is not doing and doing and doing and thinking you've done like this lawyer. The answer to eternal life is running to Christ who has loved God perfectly on our behalf and loved others perfectly on our behalf. It's not the law that can save you. Because Romans 3.23 For by works of the law no human being will be justified in the sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is meant to show us that we don't stack up to God and His standards. We have to run to Christ who does on our behalf. The parable of the Good Samaritan helps us to rejoice in Jesus because He says, you go and do likewise. And we say, but Lord, I can't. I need Your mercy. And He says, okay, I've done likewise on Your behalf. For you. Jesus doesn't allow his followers to make distinctions about who their neighbor may be or, or is or is not. He says, You be neighborly to everyone. And in that, he says, You can't be neighborly enough. Trying to justify your own imperfections will never work. And, and how many of us are right there in that boat? 
We don't have to spend a whole lot of time talking about the fact that we're all sinful, right? We know that. One of the true plagues of the church is trying to justify our own sinful actions on our own. I pray we wouldn't be like the lawyer, but we would run to Christ. We wouldn't look for a loophole to our mistakes, but we would confess them and admit them and and say, yes, Lord, in light of my inability to meet Your requirements and Your standards, please be merciful to me, a sinner. You are my only hope, my only grace, my only salvation. And what we find in Scripture is a faithful God and a faithful Savior who says, anyone who comes to me in faith, I will forgive, I will clean, and I will save for eternity. So either one, you're the person who's got a false sense of justification this morning, you think you're right with God based upon your own life and you're not, and you need this text to tear down your heart and force you to Christ. Or, You're the individual sitting this morning being forced to Christ by this text and rejoicing in His love and compassion and patience and grace and mercy. Either way, we are forced to Christ from this text because we don't stack up. And praise the Lord that possessing eternal life means possessing a heart that's been touched and conformed by God and that He is willing to do so. Lord, let us not miss the point of the text this morning, the point of the passage that we cannot justify ourselves. We may be like this man and too often desire to justify our actions and justify our inabilities, but the fact is our inabilities remain and they're supposed to remain and they're supposed to drive us to You and Your work on this earth and on the cross on our behalf. Let us not hide behind excuses and loopholes, let us confess our brokenness, our inabilities, and trust in You. Jesus, I want to so badly love You perfectly. And I want to so badly love my neighbors perfectly because You have loved me those ways. But Lord, I am sinful. And I need Your mercy. Would You please be merciful to me? Because I don't meet the standards and I don't meet the requirements. I pray that I would rest in Your finished work for me and that all of us would this morning, God. We would look to the cross as our only hope. And stand in the reality that You met the requirements perfectly to give us eternal life. Lord, this lawyer was able to ask You who lives eternally eternally about eternal life and he missed out. Don't let that be true of us. We have Your Word, Your Spirit, Your presence. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Let us not look You in the face through Scripture and walk away. Let us be moved to surrender in faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.